Thank you to our musicians uh, for their uh, service for the Lord and, and to us as well. Uh, it is a blessing. I appreciate it. Music's been good today. All right. Well, let's go ahead and take our Bibles and uh, turn to the book of Mark. Mark in chapter number 10. Mark in chapter number 10. And as you're finding that, if you're able to physically stand, uh, we'll go ahead and stand together for the reading of God's word out of respect and reverence for the holy word of God. Mark chapter number 10, and uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 12, and we're going to be studying this passage of scripture this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. The word of God says, And he arose from thence, and cometh into the coasts of Judea, by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resort unto him again. And as he was wont, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house, his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another, committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Lord, we uh, are thankful for all that's taken place this morning. Thank you for a good Sunday school hour. Thank you for the song service and the time of fellowship. Lord, now as we turn our attention to... Uh, the words that we just read. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have a receptive heart. Lord, I know that this particular subject brings a lot of different feelings, a lot of different emotions, and perhaps even walls will come up. But Father, I pray that we would have a realization that these are the very words of God. And Lord, help us to understand them, to respond to them, accordingly. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Today, as we go from Mark chapter number 9 to Mark chapter number 10, and we get closer and closer to the cross, to the, the moment when Jesus becomes our sacrifice, and and, and Jesus is heading there here in Mark chapter number 10. We, uh, as we do this, we come to a very sensitive topic that uh, I realize has affected most of us in some way, shape, or form. And it's the topic of divorce. The title of the message is Marriage and Divorce because we are going to talk about marriage as well. 
but the word divorce strikes a nerve in just about every person in this day and age. I would dare say that all of us at least know someone who was directly affected by divorce. And I also realize that there are several people in our church who are divorced. Now, number one, I want you to know that as we begin this very delicate message today, um, number one, that God loves you. Look, aren't you glad that God's love for us is not dependent upon our marital status? Aren't you thankful for that? He loves us whether we're single, whether we're married, widowed, or divorced. He loves us just the same. And I also want you to know this as we get into this. I love you regardless of your marital status too. And uh, everybody is welcome here at Cornerstone Baptist Church despite their marital status. I don't want this message to be a bash session where you walk away feeling beat up because of something that happened in the past. I don't want to pour salt on your wounds that are uh, no doubt still very open. I also want you to know that I am responsible as a preacher of the word of God to do just that, to preach the word of God. I am called to preach the word of God in season, out of season. I am called to preach the whole counsel of God. The, portion, the portions of the scriptures that preach really well when I know I'll get a whole bunch of amens. <laughs> but also the difficult portions that aren't as comfortable to cover, such as the one that I just read a few moments ago. But if it's in God's word, it needs to be covered regardless of how it makes everybody else feel, regardless of how comfortable it is to cover. Um, we are going to be covering this passage, and um, I know that this is a controversial one, um, and it seems like we've been doing that a lot recently. <laughs> Mark chapter number 9 goes into uh, a pretty um, difficult uh, passage on hell. And we dealt with that. Uh, not a very comfortable thing to preach about. No one likes to think about the destination for those who are without Christ, and yet it's important. And, and Mark chapter number 10 is, is just the same word of God as is John 3.16. And so today I am led by the Lord as we're walking through the gospel of Mark to cover this difficult topic. And this week, as I was preparing and studying for this, I did look up some, some statistics uh, regarding divorce and marriage, uh, and ones that were not 30 years old, but ones that I found that were even just not even a year old. A year ago, um, uh, 2021, I read that almost 50% of all marriages in the United States will end in divorce or separation, statistically. The average age for couples going through their very first divorce is 30 years old. I read that wives are the ones who most often file for divorce at 66% on average. 
I read that people are 75% more likely to end their marriage if a friend is divorced. I read that 48% of those who marry before the age of 18 are likely to, to divorce within 10 years, compared to 25% of those who marry after the age of 25. So in other words, this says that you wait a little longer and uh, grow up a tad bit more, and uh, then statistically, you're a little more likely to make it through the marriage. And while many people have opinions and perspectives on marriage and divorce, we're not here today to listen to man's thoughts about these topics. We're here to find out what God has to say about them. He is the final authority. And Jesus does indeed have much to say about the seriousness of marriage and divorce. And by the way, it's not like Jesus just blurted this out. He was approached about this. He was asked about this. And so today, with God being my helper, I want to walk through this passage and look at what Jesus says about marriage and divorce. And number one, as we look through this passage, we see, number one, the testing. The testing. Now, as we pointed out previously, Mark, the gospel writer here, includes, uh, it's the shortest of the gospels, of course, and uh, he doesn't highlight everything that some of the other gospel writers included. And so he only, he only includes certain uh, miracles, parables, and teachings, uh, the ones that he wanted to highlight Jesus as our serving Savior. And as the shortest gospel, not everything Jesus said or did is recorded uh, by uh, John Mark here. One example occurs between the close of chapter 9 and the opening of chapter number 10, as he doesn't mention a five-month period of time that is recorded in John chapter 7 through 11, that uh, those uh, four or five chapters there are not recorded in uh, Mark. They would take place between uh, the end of chapter number 9 and the beginning of chapter number 10. And uh, Luke chapter 9 through 18 is that same passage there, that same time period that Luke records, but Mark chooses not to. Mark is quick to try to just take us right to the cross and uh, to show us the ultimate way in which he served us by becoming our sacrifice, becoming our ransom. Well, in verse number one, it says, And he rose from thence and came into the coasts of Judea by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resort unto him again, and as he was wont, he taught them again. So Jesus has now finished his ministry in Galilee and is making his final trip to Jerusalem uh, to become that sacrifice, to become our ransom. As they head south, they enter Judea and then cross the Jordan River into the land known as Perea. This is the traditional route from Galilee to Jerusalem, which uh, usually involved a detour around Samaria, because remember, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, except for that one time in John chapter number four, when Jesus says, or when, when John says about Jesus, he must needs go through Samaria, remember that, and, and had that encounter with the <clears throat> woman at the well who had five husbands, and the one he, she was living with was not her husband at that time, but she was just living with him. Well, of course, crowds begin to crush around him as they always did, and once again, Jesus teaches them in verse number one. Now, as has happened before, these 
phony Pharisees set up Jesus with a question in order to try to trip him up. They try to test him. They're not searching for answers or longing to learn the truth, but rather out to entrap him. Uh, Verse number two says, The Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Tempting him. And as we uh, think about this test here, uh, I want us to see, first of all, that there was a controversy to give a little background on why they would ask this question. Uh, Divorce was very common in that culture, as it is in ours. But there was a lot of controversy surrounding it. There were two main schools of thought championed by two different rabbis in that day. Incidentally, the option of divorce was available only for the husband at that time. Uh, The wife could not file for that. Only the husband could put away his wife. Uh, Rabbi Shammai uh, was one such rabbi who uh, took a stand, and uh, there was one school of thought that he was kind of the authority over, and that was this. Divorce was only permitted in the event of immorality. And then and only then could the husband put away his wife. So Rabbi Shammai was a little more on the conservative side of things, but there was another rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, and uh, he championed this thought, that divorce was allowed for almost any reason. A man could divorce his wife if she was seen talking to other men. He could divorce his wife if she took... Literally, if she put too much salt on their food, he could say, you know what? I'm filing for a divorce. So, uh, no jokes here on that. But anyway, (laughs) in that day, under Rabbi Hillel's uh, thought, uh, a man could divorce his wife if she said something unkind about her mother-in-law, about his, his mom. She said something unkind, I'm going to put you away. And so he, as you can imagine, the school of Hillel was much more popular because it gave a lot more freedom to the husband to put her away uh, if he uh, saw fit. Really, it was you name it, you could make a case for it. And uh, under Rabbi Hillel's uh, little plan, uh, you could put away your wife. And this was more popular, and the Pharisees followed this view as seen in their question uh, recorded in um, Matthew 19, 13 is, 19 verse 3 is the parallel passage of this. And here's what they asked in that case. They said, is it lawful for a man to put his wife for every cause? In Mark, he doesn't include that part of it, but in Matthew's record, he did. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Some historians have noted that it was not uncommon for Roman men to have as many as 20 wives in their lifetime. Now, divorce was not near as prevalent among the Jews, but it was still a big issue. And the Pharisees were hoping that Jesus would, as they asked this question, that he would be forced to take a side. Who, who, who do you stand with? Which rabbi do you associate with? Well, of course, uh, he doesn't side with any one of them, as we'll see in a moment. Um, and so he w- they were hoping that 
uh, he would divide the people and giving the religious leaders ammunition to attack him and ultimately to destroy him and kill him. That's what they were continually after. And so there was controversy, but there was also a cause. In verse number two, the reason they asked this question again is not to really find out what Jesus has to say, but really hoping that this would trip him up. In verse number two, at the end of it, it says tempting him. They wanted to uh, get him to trip up on his words and, and, and force him into a decision so that uh, he would, he would uh, ultimately be destroyed. There's another cultural connection that's helpful to uh, be reminded of. Jesus right now is now in the territory controlled by Herod Antipas. And if you recall, this was this Herod who had committed adultery, divorced his wife and married Herodias, who had divorced her husband. And it was John the Baptist, if you remember, who confronted Herod about his adultery and lost his head over it, literally. Mark 6.18 says this, For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. And perhaps the Pharisees are trying to force Jesus into saying something that they can report back to Herod so that he'll arrest and murder Jesus as well. One pastor put it like this. He said, if Jesus sided with the liberal school, well, suddenly the Pharisees would become conservatives and say Jesus was going against the law of Moses. If he sided with the conservatives, then they would say he was going against public opinion. And the trap was set. If he condemned divorce, he could suffer the fate of John. If he condoned divorce, he would lose the confidence of those who were following him. Now, obviously, Jesus doesn't take a side either way, does he? And I love how Jesus turns the tables on them by ignoring their question. and Instead, he answers their question, as he often did, with a question of his own. In verse number three, he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? You see, Moses was their go-to man, so Jesus took them to what Moses wrote. Let me point out a couple important things here. As we consider this, first, he takes them back to the scriptures. It ultimately doesn't matter what two rabbis say or what any man says. It only really matters what God says. We must always ask, what does the Bible say about a particular issue? And that's what he does here. He also personalized it by using the word you. In verse number three, what did Moses command you? The Bible must always be applied personally, and I love how Jesus moves people from the theoretical to the practical and then the personal. The question is not what's your view, but what about you? What do you what is what does this have to do with you? And then in verse number four, they say, Well, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. Well, verse 5, Jesus says, well, you want to know the reason he wrote that? Because the hardness of your heart. And that's why he wrote it. For the hardness of your heart, he wrote this precept. So we see in this passage, there was first the testing here as they were trying to trip Jesus up and in an attempt to get him to choose sides, thus creating a greater controversy about Jesus. But instead, he takes them to the scriptures and then, in, and then, so secondly, I want us to see here the truth. 
See, I, I love what Jesus does next as he turns the conversation from a discussion about divorce to the divine design of marriage. And instead of him kind of continuing on the discussion of divorce, he kind of calls a timeout and says, let's go back to the original design of marriage. Because that's really the focus. And he gives them the truth about that. So he reframes the question from when is it okay to divorce to what does God say about marriage? Because it's a different mentality. You say, well, it's the same question. It's just semantics. No, no. When is it okay to divorce to, okay, well, let's, let's go back and let's see what God says about marriage. And so first we see here the reminder in verse number six. The reminder is in verse 6, from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Jesus brings them back to the very beginning, to the creation of man, and reminds them that God created two genders. Only two genders, by the way. We obviously as a society today are very confused about how many genders there are. I looked it up this week and came across an article stating that, they are, that there are, and uh, I'm going to say there are, in air quotes there, but an article stated that there were 112 different genders. Um, based on the authority of the Word of God, they're off by 110. <laughs> There's tremendous clarity in this verse. From the beginning, God made them male and female. There's only two. And while most of us would easily, quickly, and heartily agree with that, are we really willing to agree the same way with the biblical roles of the genders? We learned a little bit about that at the men's advance. We were encouraged as men to fulfill our role in the home, as husbands, as fathers, as outlined in the Word of God, not as outlined by society in what the expectation of a husband should be and, the, and a father should be and what... Uh, no, no, no. Uh, we are to fulfill the role that God has given to us as outlined in the Word of God. And same could be said for the wife. Not what society says, you know, the old, what you can do, I can do better. And you know what? In many, in many cases, ladies, that is, that, is, that is true. You can do a lot of things better than I can. My wife can do a lot of things better than I can. She can do her hair a lot better than I can do my hair. And, and there's some things that, you know, well, that's typically what a guy would do and all that. Look, there's some things my wife would maybe better organized than me and, and, and all that stuff. Uh, but um, I, I, I'm just saying, look, there's – we need to get back to what God's word teaches about the genders and what those roles look like, biblically speaking, not what the world says they should look like. Um, I know there's a lot of ladies in our church who work outside the home. 
and I'm not necessarily against that, but the biblical role of a woman and a wife is to be a keeper at home. That's in the Bible. Oh, I, that's, that's old-fashioned, you know. You're one of those, every woman needs to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. I'm just saying what the Bible says. They're to be keepers at the home. And, and, and I know that women can do really well in the workplace and many cases do better than men. I get that. But we need to get back to the biblical roles of both male and female. And not just understanding there's two genders, and I think most of us would agree with that. That's not common. That's an easy amen today. Um, but we need to get back to what the Word of God teaches about the roles and how they should be fulfilled. And so he reminds them here in verse number 6 about the beginning of the creation, that God made them male and female, and then he gives them the responsibilities in verse number 7 and 8. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh, and so then they are no more twain but one flesh. What are the responsibilities? And um, first we see that there needs to be a leaving a leaving. Once again, we uh, see clearly from God's original design that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Must always choose scripture over society. The Bible does not allow for same-sex marriage, by the way. And I realize that that is and not very popular as you look at society as a whole. Um Male and female, man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Not man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his husband. And it does not say if a woman shall leave her father and mother and cleave to her wife. No, it doesn't say that. It says man, wife, husband, wife. That is the biblical model. Realize that, again, not very popular in our culture today. But still, going back to the uh, God's design for marriage. So leaving. The Hebrew word for leave, though, is very strong. And it means to cut off, to abandon, to forsake, and to leave behind. And when you, need, when you get married, you need to leave your parents. What this means is that you need to sever the emotional umbilical cord because your loyalty now belongs to your spouse. Your partner should never have to compete with your parents. Leaving your parents does not obviously mean ignoring them or not spending any time with them. It means, though, that your marriage created a new family and that this new family must be a higher priority than your previous family. There needs to be a leaving and so for those who are, you know, who maybe were mom boys when we were back at home living under mom and dad's roof, and now that you're married, you can't continue to be a mama's boy in a way that you always run back to mommy when things aren't working out well at home. You've got to work it out. You've got to leave. You've got to cut that emotional umbilical cord. And not running back to your parents, forcing you to work it out there at the house. 
um, we need to leave. But then there's not only leaving, we also see, secondly, there should be cleaving. Once you leave, then you need to be committed to permanence, to hold fast. Literally means to be permanently glued together. To melt two separate entities together to form a permanent bond. It, it has the idea of joining two things so tightly that they cannot be separated without damaging both things. The idea is similar to being welded or cemented together. It is a unique joining of two people into one entity. Notice again that this is a divine transaction. God has glued the two together so that they become one. This is why divorce can be so devastating. Oh, it's easy to get married. It's the living together afterwards that causes all of the challenges. I read about a couple that over their 35 years of marriage, a wife had given her husband a grapefruit for breakfast every day of their married life. And one day, for some reason, she forgot to go to the grocery store or they were out, but she didn't have a grapefruit to give to her husband that morning. And so she apologized profusely to her husband and said, I, I'm so sorry. I, I, I know I always do this for you every morning, but I, I, I just don't have one for you today. Husband smiled and replied, that's okay, dear. I never liked grapefruit anyway. <laughs> um, you see, he wasn't going to let anything sour their relationship. He understood the importance of cleaving with his wife. And so we see leaving, cleaving, and then number three, in verse number eight, we see weaving. And they twain shall be one flesh. Once leaving and cleaving takes place, then you can experiencing, experience weaving as you become one flesh. This phrase conveys the idea of oneness. This unity is to be experienced emotionally, spiritually, and physically. In God's marital Math, one plus one equals one. God's objective for marriage is a loving relationship of oneness. The idea of oneness affirms the permanent bond of marriage. You see, in a marriage covenant, the two become one and the same, uh, the one and the same, more like, kind of like mashed potatoes. You take two potatoes, one sweet potato, that would be Julie. And the other ugly, dirty potato. That would be me. And you skin them, you cut them up, and you put them in hot water to soften them, and then you mash them into one beautiful mound of mashed potatoes where you cannot separate them again. So... I say this would be a great marriage ceremony, wedding ceremony thing is like a mashed potato, <laughs> mixing it all up, and then you just put that on your mantle, okay, uh, forever, and see what happens with it. Dr. George Crane, a doctor, um, he had an MD and a PhD. He was a clinical columnist in, a, in newspapers throughout North America has calculated that when a married couple, and this is a pretty interesting statistic here, 
when a married couple are active together in the same church, they have a 50 times greater chance of avoiding the divorce. And that only one in 500 marriages breaks up where there is a family altar. When they're doing family devotions together, when they're coming together and looking at the scriptures together as a family, only one in 500. Pretty amazing. So there is the truth here that Jesus gives about marriage. And we see the reminder, the responsibilities, but then thirdly, we see the requirement in verse number nine. He says, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Remember the vow that you made with your spouse, however many years ago? Julie and I, it was 21 and a half years ago, almost 22 now. And we stood at the Grace Bible Church there in Fair Oaks, California on July 1st of 2000. And I was wearing my tux with the white bow tie, the white vest, and the tails. She made me get tails on my tux. I looked sharp. I had hair. <laughs> I really did. You should see pictures. Should have showed a picture in there. You, wouldn't have, you would not believe it. But it was that day that we both vowed to each other that we would stay with one another till death do us part. Do you remember that vow? Till death do us part. It's not, I, 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 I kind of doubt you were there at the altar and said, till we don't get along anymore to us part. I kind of doubt you had that as part of your vows. Kind of doubt that you had the vow not till we've grown apart or stopped loving each other to us part. Not till you stop being my Prince Charming or my beautiful bride to us part. See, uh, we, we promised that we would stay with one another until the very end, till death do us part. What therefore God hath joined together let not man put asunder. And we need to be reminded that that moment that we said I do was the moment that God put us together. And God sealed us. And it's a permanent bond. And so as a result, we're not to let man put asunder. Malachi 2.16, verse, uh, yeah, verse 16 says, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith he, or that he hateth putting away. We need to be reminded that God does still He's not changed. He doesn't change. He still hates divorce. More and more people seem to forget Henry Ford's sage advice when asked on his 50th wedding anniversary for his rule for marital bliss and longevity. And he replied, just the same as in the automobile business, stick to one model. And I found quite, quite a model, and I want to stick to it. Look, it's a requirement. Let not man put asunder. But then we see not only the truth here, but number three, we see the transgression. In verse number 10, it says, And in the house, his disciples, after he got done talking to the Pharisees, they make their way into the house, and the disciples said, 
Can you expound a little bit more on this? Can you clarify what you mean about this? And so here's what Jesus says to them in verse 11. Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. As we consider this transgression of divorce, and again, I realize there's people in the room who have been divorced. I don't mean this to beat you up, but, and it's not but, but I, I just want to encourage you and, and, and still preach the word of God here, though. This is not God's design and there's a good reason for it. Why? Because it involves some things. It involves, first of all, separation. Jesus spoke of a man or woman putting away their spouse. This bears a strong implication. It literally means to let go, to dismiss, disown, or cast off. It has the idea of cutting all ties. And we are aware that divorce causes separation, but that puts it in perspective, doesn't it? It reveals the harshness and devastation of the separation. God never desire, desires for this to happen. I think many of us have, as I mentioned at the beginning of the message, have experienced divorce in some way, shape, or form. Um, my parents stayed together. My dad was holding my mom's hand when she took her final breath. He stayed faithful. And at that point in her life, there was nothing she could offer him. And yet he stayed with her till death to us part. That's the kind of example that I have. And I'm thankful for that. But as you look at my extended family, there was some divorce that took place. As you look at my wife's family, in her extended family, there had been divorce that's taken place. My best friend growing up, his parents got divorced. And I see some of the separation that divorce causes. And it isn't, when we think of separation, we're, we're thinking of like, okay, there's like physical separation, and that's part of it, yes. There's always also an emotional and psychological separation as well. The scars and hurt of divorce heal very slowly, if at all. It involves separation. It also involves sin. Jesus spoke of the adultery associated with divorce in verse 11. Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. These aren't my words. I would rather not say these words, but these are his words. And we're here not to talk about what man thinks. We're here to see what Jesus has to say. And if he says it's sin, then it's sin. And your argument's not with me. And you can justify up and down. And we're going to get to a couple things here in a moment. I know that some of you are thinking, well, what about this verse? What about that verse? We're going to get to that in just a second. But generally speaking, sin, it is sin to get divorced, generally speaking. God's word's not mine. 
sin is really always at the heart of divorce. And of course, I want to say that with a heart of love, but it is true nonetheless. You may have suffered a failed relationship that ended in divorce by no fault of your own, but there was sin on the, on the part of your spouse. You may have been faithful to the marriage relationship, seeking to work through the difficulty, but your spouse was engaged in, a, in adultery. Sin was at the heart of that, of, of that adultery. See, God intended for marriage to be for life, and yet many times sin enters that relationship and it is terminated. I, I don't think you and I could think of a circumstance where sin is not directly involved with a divorce somewhere down the line. See, it involves sin. But then it also involves suffering. And it's not necessarily in, in the text here, but, but we know that divorce does cause tremendous suffering. Because see, when divorce involves sin, sin brings suffering. Both parties end up suffering. Divorce always leaves scars and heartache no matter how nice of a divorce it was. Imagine this morning you have two pieces of cardboard that are super glued together. And after some time for it to cure and all of that, and then you take that cardboard and you begin to separate it. Is it going to be a clean cut? No. Part of this piece of cardboard is going to be left on that, and parts of this are going to be left on this one. It's going to be an ugly separation. No matter how nice and careful you try to make it, both parties are going to suffer. And yes, there can be forgiveness. And yes, there can be mercy in the Lord Jesus. But some of the consequences that are incurred during that divorce will linger uh, potentially for the rest of this life. Both husband and wife will carry the marks of this horrible situation for years and perhaps uh, for the rest of their days. Both parties suffer. Of course, we know this, children suffer. Children suffer. Again, I, some of you grew up in a home where divorce, your parents were divorced. And you, you know firsthand what I'm talking about here. I don't really understand because my parents stayed faithful and I'm thankful they did. There was a, a season of their marriage where uh, my brother and I were wondering if they were going to make it or not. And I remember my dad taking us out to the park to play some football he didn't really want to play football. He really wanted us to get out of the house so that he can tell us that your mom and I are going through a difficult patch right now, but I want you to know we're going to stay faithful to one another. We're going to make this work. You can stop worrying about us breaking up. We're going to make this work. I'm thankful he did that. Because I can only imagine, I mean, in that moment, it was getting scary, and I began to question a lot of things, and my dad put a lot of those fears at ease when he had that talk with us. But, but some of you, your parents never had that talk with you. They never made that promise, and they did end up getting divorced. I can only imagine some of the hurt that you perhaps are still dealing with. Most of us uh, who are a little bit older would remember Pete Rose. He played on the Cincinnati Reds, but dealt with uh, gambling addiction and is 
to my knowledge, not in the Hall of Fame, although he played as though he could have been, but he was eliminated from consideration because of his uh, sketchy um, dealings with baseball. But that's not what this story is about. This is about Pete Rose Jr., Pete Rose's son. And he said that the betting scandal of his father in really meant little to little Petey. You see, he still dwelt on his parents' years-old divorce. His father was remarried with a new child and another on the way. His mother was tending bar in Cincinnati. And Petey became a better-than-average big-league prospect himself. And athletes at that stage in their career are usually single-minded and driven. Yet Petey said something like this. He said, I would trade whatever future I have in big league baseball to just see my parents get back together. It was as if he hadn't read the papers, didn't know the truth about his parents' marriage. See, Pete Sr. had such an incredible reputation for chasing women and such nasty, impossible to take back things that had been said by each about the other that no one would give two cents for the possibility of any civility, let alone a reconciliation. And with Pete Sr. remarried, there's no chance. Yet that comment from little Pete, if he were my son, would haunt me to my grave, Jerry Jenkins wrote. Children suffer. And I don't think we could say that enough. But also society suffers. Almost half of children of divorces enter adulthood as worried underachieving, self-depreciating, and sometimes angry young men and women, reports Judith Wallerstein, director of the Center for Family and Transition and author of Second Chance. Her conclusion is drawn from interviews conducted over a 15-year period with 60 families, mostly uh, white middle class. Other Wallerstein findings, three out of five youngsters felt rejected by at least one parent. Half grew up in settings in which the parents were warring with each other even after the divorce. So you can see these children who are hurt then take that with them to affect society. And the more divorce there is, the more acceptable it becomes, the less of a stigma that there is. And uh, let's just, you know what, it's just not working out. Let's just go down this path because, look, everybody else is doing it. It's not that big of a deal anymore. And society suffers. So it is a transgression. But I want us to see fourthly and lastly this morning the tolerance. And this is where some of you are going, well, what about this? What about that? We're going to look at just very briefly here in the next uh, couple minutes here that, first of all, there are exceptions. Now, here in Mark chapter 10, Jesus does not include the exceptions. But in Matthew chapter 19, he does. Now, in order to faithfully deal with this issue, we, we must look at the parallel, pa parallel passage in Matthew. This is what is commonly referred to as the exception clause. Matthew 19, verse number 9 says this, And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. 
So Jesus here says that divorce results in adultery with the exception of fornication. Um, we need to understand that that is there. And there, there's another one in, in, in the book of Corinthians between a believing uh, spouse and an unbelieving spouse. And if the unbelieving spouse decides to depart and leave, then they are allowed to let them leave and then they're free to remarry. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we don't have time to go in and examine all the ins and outs of all that, but there are exceptions. But here's the deal. Not only is there exceptions, there is an emphasis. There is an emphasis. As you read through the Word of God and examine it, you're not going to find a command or an encouragement from God to divorce. Even in those exception situations, there's not an encouragement to do so. There's not a command to do so. You see, once a couple has taken the vows of marriage, they are a one flesh in his eyes. As you read through the Gospels, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John does not have this particular passage in there. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. Matthew includes the exception. Mark and Luke do not. What does that mean? I don't pretend to know the whole, all the reasons why that Mark and Luke chose not to include that part in their record. But I can, I can say this. The emphasis with it being included in only one of three instances would say to me that God wants to emphasize the expectation of the permanence of marriage rather than the exception to allow for divorce. I think there are a lot of people who point to the exception clauses as justification for their decision and place the emphasis on this loophole, but that's not where God places the emphasis on the amount of time and airtime that the scriptures give to this. This way, they're, they're, they're wanting to find a way of escape rather than understanding the emphasis on staying together. Again, Okay, so let's suppose that there is unfaithfulness in a marriage. And yes, according to Matthew chapter 19, you can put away that person. But that doesn't mean you have to. There can still be restoration. There still can be forgiveness. There still can be a faithful marriage going forward. That doesn't have to be, well, I guess now I have to call an, a divorce, divorce lawyer. And you start looking at the billboards and finding a lawyer again. No, it doesn't have to be that way. Now, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. There's still an emphasis on the scriptures of staying together. You think about uh, Hosea in the Bible. She was unfaithful to this prophet. But did he put her away? No. 
And, and of course, there was a spiritual application there, but here's the deal. And, and look, I don't want to say if you're in a physically abusive situation, obviously, obviously, no, you don't need to stay in there. But for the sake of separation, the sin that it involves and the suffering that it will bring, do you really want to go down that road? I read another statistic, and I didn't read it, but um, where two or three years after the divorce, most, a high percentage, I think it's like 70% of women regret their decision to do that. And, and I think a majority of the men do too. So I know in the heat of the moment, it's like, man, we'd just be better off if we were uh, divorced. You, you don't know that. That's an emotional decision. So there is an emphasis. What's the takeaway for us this morning, this afternoon? We'll wrap this up here in the next couple minutes. But, okay, for those who are, for those who are single, you have a choice to make. You're going to either view marriage from the world's perspective or from God's perspective. I would say to you, be content in your situation and focus on, what, on doing what God wants for you to do right this moment. And then keep your eyes open. The Bible does say, whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. So keep your eyes open. It's hard to find things when your eyes are shut. But when you get to that point, go into it with the biblical understanding of the permanence and the process of marriage. Okay, what if you're married today and in, and in a God-blessed marriage? You have a wonderful marriage. Things are going well. Can I encourage you to be grateful, to give thanks, but don't rest. Continue to invest in your marriage. My wife and I recently took a couple days to get away and to get some rest and focus on our marriage. We try to do that a couple times a year, if possible. And I realize we haven't been able to do this when our kids were in diapers and all of that. Or are they still in diapers, Faith? Okay. <laughs> They're at a point now where we can, we can do that, and I'm thankful. Um, but taking that time to invest in your marriage to keep the fire burning. You've got to keep the fires burning. Otherwise, just like a campfire, you start, stop putting wood on the, on the fire, it's going to eventually go out. And we don't want that to happen. We want to stay, stay on fire for one another. Okay, well, what if you're married and miserable? Someone in the marriage has a hard heart. Obviously, this is not what God intended. Surrender your marriage to the Lord and ask God to soften hearts and then say, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I want to fulfill my role to the best of my ability. Please help me to be the best spouse for my partner. Help me to be the right husband if you're a guy and a wife. Uh, help me to be a good wife and, and to uh, be a blessing to my husband in that way if you're, if you're a lady. Okay, if you're planning to get married, get premarital counseling and make a purity pledge that we're going to save ourselves for our marriage and we're going to do it God's way. What if you're going through a divorce? 
Again, someone has a hard heart. Surrender it to God. Is it your fault? Or repent. Turn back. Discover God's blueprint. Be the husband God called you to be. Be the wife God called you to be in a kind, respectful, humble person of prayer. Is it the other person's fault? Maybe they committed adultery. Remember, divorce and adultery are not the unpardonable sin. Ask for God's grace to forgive. The most powerful legacy you can leave your children is uh, a harmonious and, uh, and, and forgiveness in the face of great uh, personal injury. If you've been divorced, and again, I know some of you are in that boat. I know you wish you could change it, but you can't. Again, please understand, it's not the unpardonable sin. And we here at Cornerstone Baptist Church love you, and God loves you. But I, need to, I, I do need to preach the truth so that we encourage the young people to go the right direction. Seek forgiveness in the Lord if you have gone through that avenue. I know this is a touchy subject, and it brings a lot of emotions. This was not something I was looking forward to bringing this morning. I was like, ooh, this is going to preach. Yeah. I'm going to get a bunch of, amen, come on, preacher. No, I knew this wasn't going to be one of those messages. Not that any of them are, uh, but I knew this definitely wouldn't be one of those. Um, but I, I do want to encourage all of us to remember what God says about this, to not be beat up by it, but to also remember the truth of it. And this is the final authority, not what society says, not what I say, not even what you say. This is the authority. With that, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. Giving us instruction about things in this life that are fun to talk about and things that aren't. And God, I pray that you would help marriages in here today that are struggling. Lord, that there would be a recommitment to the divine design of marriage. Lord, those who have been affected by divorce, I pray, Lord, that they would not feel like we're trying to bash them in any way, but, Lord, that we're trying to preach the truth and show people what God has to say about this. Lord, may they seek forgiveness and mercy in their situation. May you bring about um, good that even can come from this. Lord, your word says we know all things to work together for good. It's hard to wrap our heads around how you could cause good to come from divorce, but Lord, you are a good God. Lord, we, we trust you for that. Lord, I pray that, Lord, you'd help the marriages that are in, in this room here today, that they would stay faithful, that they would work out and, and, Lord, last and be permanent so that it doesn't continue this propagation of suffering. Lord, that there would be a commitment to one another and a commitment to you. Lord, I pray that you would uh, mightily bless each person in this room, however this affected them. 
And Lord, I pray that you'd help us all now to apply the word of God to our life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, what we're going to do at this time is we're going to... Uh,